poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG has over $4.2 million in live MTT caches and is the founder of the charity series of Poker, Matt Stout. Matt's origin story into the world of poker began as a 19-year-old college student and has taken him around the world. And not just for travel, but also for, you know, living as Black Friday forced Matt to seek out places where he could continue his online poker career. He's lived in spots like Costa Rica, Amsterdam, and Rosarita, Mexico. If you've ever been wondering or curious about living the life of a traveling online poker player, you're about to learn which of those locales was Matt's favorite and which one almost killed him. And like I say, pretty much in every single CPG intro, you're also going to learn example number 1021 of why I believe the poker world is chock full of amazing human beings who not only chase poker greatness, but also chase what it means to be a great human being as well. In today's conversation with Matt Stout, you're going to learn the events that led to Matt running charity poker tournaments for the Vegas Golden Knights, why college ended a bit early for Matt and a hilarious story about paying his tuition, Matt's trials and tribulations dealing with the aftermath of Black Friday, and much, much more. Now, without any further ado, I bring to you an all-time great poker player who lives to serve his fellow man, the great Matt Stout. Mr. Stout, welcome to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast, sir. What's up? Thanks. For having me. It's my pleasure. And we've been having a pre-conversation. We've got a lot of things to get to over the course of this conversation. Typically, though, with this podcast, specifically, we start by talking about your journey through the world of cards. Uh, so to begin, how state your age <laughs> and tell me about how you got into the world of cards and all the fun life lessons and stories you've accumulated on the way. Uh, how much time you got? I got a lot of time. <laughs> I got all the time. All right. So the, the kind of cool way to put it is that I started playing poker when I was four years old because that's when my sister taught me how to play five-card draw. But it's less relevant than during the moneymaker boom when I was in college. So around 2004 is when I just like really started going headfirst into poker. And that's funny because this morning I was thinking a lot about how there was one specific AOL instant message that I can trace my entire career path back to. My buddy Nick Luisi sent me a message. He's like, yo, do you play cards? I was like, yeah. He's like, you want to come over and play 25, 50 cent hold'em? I was like, what? what? What, what the hell did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> it was like Chinese. And I was like, and he, he was like, oh, it's poker. And I was like, I'm in. I'll see you there at eight. <laughs> so that night we played for like 
six hours. Uh, and I remember specifically that I made $4.25, went to Wendy's, the only place still open, was eating a bunch of stuff off the dollar menu that I bought with <laughs> other people's poker money. This is the greatest game ever. Uh, and so college just became my breeding ground for grinding poker stars uh, and full tilt. And that was just kind of kind of how things went from then on. I remember that I got fired from my campus bookstore job because a few months after I learned how to play, I was playing a $5 rebuy with a huge field and didn't realize that it was going to take all night. And I ended up final tabling and winning like a grand and got to my job on literally no sleep because I started at nine and it was like 8 a.m. by the time I was finished with the tournament. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, I got through the first half of my work day fine and went home for lunch and just completely passed out. leaving <laughs> a second. Woke up like three hours later, <laughs> walked into work, and they're like, you're fired. And I was like, yeah. Fair. Uh, Good call. So, you know, it's it's tough, but it's fair. And honestly, my first thought was, well, that's fine, because now I kind of have a role, and I have more time to grind, and we'll be all right. Um, I obviously had, I had no clue about bank at all, but. <laughs> well. Of course, you're you're in college. Um, tell me about the what the steps that you took in the beginning to learn about poker, immersing yourself. Did you gravitate towards books? Are you, uh, you know, kinesthetic learner? Did you learn by playing? What did that look like? I mean, the, it was a combination of books and playing. There weren't training videos back then. But there weren't equity calculators. None of that was around yet. We were in the beginning stages of people actually like writing decent books with real strategy. Like uh, there was Super System and Harrington on Hold'em. Those were the ones that I started uh, by reading. But I also, I just saw that, I mean, a lot of people don't even understand who didn't play back then, but like no one had a clue what was going on. The good players were just like the players who had some kind of strategy and were even trying. Like you could kind of multi-table and watch TV and have 100% ROI in tournaments, like no problem. If you had any idea what you were doing. And it was, I mean, the getting was good. So uh, after I quit my job, it was just studying a little bit mostly. <laughs> Let's use the air quotes for quit. Quit your job. Oh, sorry. Fired from my job. <laughs> definitely, definitely not quit. Like, that was funny. That's the only time I was ever fired from a job. So, uh, quit. I mean, in my heart of hearts, like my body did what my heart wanted to do. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, if you just go to sleep right now, not only do you get to nap, but you get to play a lot more poker going forward. <laughs> so... I actually kind of built up like um, I, think my, I got my roll up to like 7k um, while I was still 19 and a junior in college and then dusted half of it off in a single session playing 510 on two tables because that was that was how I thought bankroll management worked I thought like you just 
buy in for 1K of 510 on two tables at a time while you have a roll of 7K. And that's your entire life work. How do you feel, <laughs> by the way, losing the 3.5K? Do you remember the feeling after that session? I do. I, I, it was absolutely demoralizing. And it's like, that was the moment where I learned bankroll management. I, I lumbered away from my computer defeated. Like the first two were like, uh, were like standardish hands. And then I just like tilted off a third buy-in and then realized that I had just dusted off half my net worth. And just, it was like seven o'clock, seven thirty at night. And I just went straight to bed, like just <laughs> fell face first in bed and didn't get up for like 12 or 13 hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I went to the college in New Jersey. So we were like an hour and a half from Atlantic city. And I went to AC a few times, but, uh, then just got kind of paranoid. I was playing, I, I, that was actually one of the only times that I was like gambling. I didn't really play table games after I turned 21, but had been playing blackjack at Taj Mahal one day and got like death stared by a pit boss when I was 19 and was just like, all right, I'm not coming back. Like, and then managed to hold off till I was 21. So why were you getting I, death stared underage? Oh yeah. Cause I was 19 and I was, I was clearly underage and just like <laughs> stared me down and gave me the look of like, I know you're underage. Like, please leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I appreciate that as opposed to that, you know, let's get the law involved kind of way to go about it. <laughs> So I just grinded a lot online, grinded every game I could find around my college, which were even softer than the online games, but everything was just beautiful back then. Um, made enough to you know pay for everything that I had to pay for and kind of built up a few thousand dollar roll. And then I turned 21. I was doing a double major in business and psychology. So I had two senior years because I had to do so many 400 level classes. And I turned 21 in the middle of the first senior year, my business senior year, and was back and forth to Atlantic City the entire finals week because my birthday was during finals week. I remember studying from the table and grinding one, two in the nightly tournaments and stuff. Um, then... Uh, I still did well on all my finals, got to, uh, got to AC and just settled in for the entire winter break. Aside from like Christmas day only, I went home to hang out with the family and then was straight back to AC, spent six weeks down there. Um, and well, why I was it so exciting to play poker? Why, why, why were you sucked in so hard to the poker world? I mean, online, it wasn't quite as appealing. Like I loved it, but I was still able to keep it together and you know get to enough of my classes i was still missing some classes because i was too tired in the morning after playing all night and stuff but i it was you know the bright lights the casinos going out to restaurants every night like i grew up like not super poor but like we certainly weren't just going to be able to like stay in hotels and go out to restaurants all the time and I, it was the first time i got to kind of live that lifestyle and um so there was that allure and just the fact that i felt like i had such an edge and it was like Anytime I was away from the tables, I feel like I was just piss passing on an opportunity to not only play a game I love and get better at it, but to bring money. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I got back to school and I had, I think I had uh, spent most of my money. I actually got to Atlantic City with like 500 or a thousand bucks to start winter break and had 7,000 by the end of winter break. I uh, went back to school for my second semester of the business senior year and was informed that they were missing a signature on one of my student loan paperworks. And as a result, they hadn't gotten paid for the previous semester and they unregistered me from all my classes. And they sent a letter to my house where I wasn't to inform me of this. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> They didn't bother calling my cell or anything like my cell was on file with the school. Any call about this, I would have made sure it was taken care of right away because as much as I love the game and realize the opportunity, I was very serious about school and wanted to finish. I get back to school and I go to the uh, register. How did that happen? Like, what's the protocol? If they don't get paid uh, 50% or 51% or something, if they don't get paid at least half-ish of the previous semester, they they won't let you enroll for the following semester. But, I mean, it's pretty shitty to send one letter to my parents' house while I'm at the North Tower of Tropicana in Atlantic City. <laughs> yeah, you'd think that they'd have more motivation to get paid. At least, you know, call the person that can make this happen. Yeah, I mean... I would have taken it very seriously. I'd have left Atlantic City and gone and handled it if I had to. Like, uh, I was not going to let this happen. Uh, so uh, to the point that I show up at the registrar's office or whatever the hell you call it, and naturally I uh, was a 21-year-old poker player and had my entire bankroll in my pocket. <laughs> I wasn't going to put it in the bank. I just had to be ready to gamble at all times. Mm-hmm. I walk in there with seven grand in my pocket and they tell me that they hadn't gotten paid for the previous semester, but I live off campus. I had a partial scholarship. It's a state school. And basically I had to pay 3,500 bucks to get the 50 50 or 51% paid for the previous semester. The look on their faces when I pulled it out of (laughs) and paid it in cash is something I'll never forget. And, So I hand over the cash immediately and I was like, all right, how do I get back to my classes? They tell me I have to meet with the dean of the school of business. I set up a meeting with the dean. He no-shows. And I wait a half hour in his office while he doesn't show up. Uh, I give up, go back to my dorm and register. We don't have Wi-Fi back then. Everything's wired connection. So it's not like I can like walk around campus while I'm still in tournaments. So I go put in a session. I go back the next morning and they're like, oh, he's uh, he's on vacation for two weeks. <laughs> and like, I was like, oh, cool. So uh, he's the only guy who can sign me back into my classes. He no showed me and then went on vacation and isn't answering my emails, calls, nothing. Uh, I decide to take a semester off and I am currently still on that semester. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get your 3500 back? No. I what? Owed it, I owed it to them for the previous semester. Oh, the previous one. So gotcha. I ended up just figuring that out. And like when I paid off my car with my dad, uh, we worked that into the figure. <laughs> but yeah. He, he, uh, that, 
Needless to say, it was a pretty infuriating experience all around. But T- tell me about the moment you like pull out your roll from your pocket and <laughs> hand over, like just count out the hundreds and like just looking fan at them like on the desk. Board. They're just like astounded that I just happen to have this amount of cash on <laughs> as what is supposed to be a broke college student stands before them, who mm-hmm. is unpaid for the previous semester, leading them to assume <laughs> that I'm probably broke. But no, I just failed to be communicated with and was more than ready to make sure that this was taken care of. So, I mean, there, like, it was really just like two people who watched it just like jaws dropped, kind of looking at me like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) That's the only way I could describe it. It's Uh, a great, it's a great story. I wanted them to say something. I, I just, they're like, oh, I gambled for this. Yeah. I was in Atlantic City all of winter break. That's why I didn't get your letter and <laughs> take the money. It's uh, it's funny. I have a similar story. Not thirty five hundred though. I when I was twenty one, um, I had no credit. I had been playing poker for six months or so, and so I had no credit. Had no like any sort of financial history of anything, and decided like the razor came out the cell phone, the singular razor. Everybody had to have the razor. Had to have the razor, right? Right. So like I go there, I sign up and they're like, oh, it's a 500. They're like, you know, I see the, just the look on their face. I remember it. They're like, it's a $500 deposit. Like, sorry, it's a $500 deposit. And I'm just like, okay. (laughs) Like I just pulled out a giant roll of cash. Like, here you go. (laughs) Like, is that good? No big deal, right? Like I get it back, get it back in a year. Okay, cool. Let's go. <laughs> and they're just like, nobody's ever paid the deposit. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Being underestimated. It is. It's nice. It's like, yeah, I'm the first. Remember me. Um, <laughs> so you took your semester off that you're still, your double uh, senior years have not been completed as of yet. So what the hell happened? in that semester you took off? So the semester off went pretty well. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we go back to Atlantic City, move back into the Tropicana. Um, Borgata poker hadn't really built itself up yet. This was in the infancy of it, or I don't even, I think this was right around the time they were opening. I think they opened in 06, if I'm not mistaken. I could easily be mistaken. Um, but it was right around then, so uh, Tropicana was actually one of the bigger rooms in town, and Taj was just kind of dingy, so I would go over to uh, Taj for all the tournaments, but stayed at the very lovely Tropicana Atlantic City. Um, and I started grinding one, two, two, five, but I knew that tournaments were my calling, that it was more fun to me, that um, I, I held my discipline de- together better when, when I played cash, it was like, eh, this is just money. Like I wasn't as worried about making a bad call as I was when I'm working for a stack all day and like feel the need to protect it. And I'm chasing this huge first place prize instead of just trying to win the single pot for two buy-ins, four buy-ins, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that all just kind of appealed to me and. It also just appealed to me that if you play a tournament, you have to battle with me. If we play cash, you can avoid me. But I always love the aspect of like knowing that you're going to have to beat everyone. You're going to have to battle with everyone. And 
that was all just kind of my motivation to grind more tournaments. Why did um, that? Why, why is that so meaningful to you? That very you can't, you can't avoid me. We got to go. Because I'm very competitive, and I don't like. Uh, I I like to be pressured into like really battling and having to try to win all the chips and the competitive side of me isn't as satisfied when i win six eight buy-ins in a cash game whatever the most you can realistically win is it, it never appealed to me quite as much as you know chasing huge first place prizes and feeling like you have to like you know go at it with everybody and really just like be ready to battle with like the end bosses and the sickos because like by the time yeah i guess i don't want to jump too far ahead in this story but like by the time i was 22 i was playing like the bellagio 15ks uh, and like just playing against all the people that i was watching on tv and just like had to not be intimidated and learn how to battle with them and not be scared and that was a lot of fun for me and where i kind of got a lot of my chops so how did it feel uh, when you came up on the short end of the stick in these battles that are for, you know, relatively high stakes, not just the prize pool, but also like, you know, opportunity costs. You spend all day playing this tournament, nurturing the stack, battling, 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 and then something goes horribly wrong. Did that ever get you down or was it just motivation to do your best to improve? That was, I definitely would have preferred for the, the stability of cash and having much smaller swings but but it still was just still so much more motivating in tournament play like even though those spots are obviously demoralizing you just have to have the right mindset and understand it as a big picture thing and know how much your hourly still is despite this bad beat for whatever equity um it it was something that it definitely took a little while to to fully wrap my head around and embrace especially when you know it's one thing to to get used to it in the atlantic city dailies but when you start traveling the tour and it starts happening in 10ks i remember one stretch when i was 22 before i made my first wpt final table i think i was 23 for my first wpt final table and there were just multiple spots where I got it all in pre with aces for like six, eight, 15 buy-ins or starting stacks in 10 Ks and just got tortured over and over and over and over. And that was really demoralizing. Like I do remember after like the third one that, uh, that had happened within like a six month span, I, I remember just like staring out the window of a play and like wondering if I could really handle it. And, you know, just knowing that there's still that, like, however small the chance is that you're going to continue to take these beats, no matter how well you're playing, that there is that realistic chance that it's just going to happen again. You're going to put it all in with aces, like getting close to the money for like chip leader close and you're going to lose. And that was definitely something that took a while to um, really except but obviously like making my first final table at 23 and having like a quarter million dollar score was the motivation i needed to keep going <laughs> uh that was that that's was what got you out of the funk that's what got me out of makeup got back all the money from the the aces hands and like all that stuff just it all felt 
okay again. And like, after that point, it was much easier for me to accept like the horrendous beats, especially the roughest always just felt like when you travel to somewhere for one tournament, just for the main event and you get there and you play well and run up a stack and like take a bad beat. And, like you just kind of spend the whole flight home, just wondering what could have been thinking about what you could be doing differently and all that kind of stuff. But overall, it, within a couple of years of really starting my professional career at 21, I had a good mindset about it. And where do you think it, that comes from? Just, yeah. I mean, all the money that I had, came from poker like how can i be mad i'm getting to play a game that i play for that i love for a living like that was surreal yeah so and it's not like at that point it wasn't something where like everyone had a cousin or a brother who's done it you know like you don't like there were the tv pros and that was it and like so i came up in an era where i had to like explain to people that you can be a professional poker player and that is an option and that you can have an edge in this game and trying to explain people the difference like explain really just having to explain the difference between table games and poker to people like so what's, what's crazy matt is uh, i feel like you're you're a little insulated in your bubble because like i still explain poker to people like even today i think it's so like it's not it's way way more mainstream because people just laughed in your face back then um yeah. they're like yeah what, That's what uh, I mean. okay yeah i still find myself explaining it but at the same time it's like there's there's the level of it where people are just like that's not a thing like at yeah. least now they're like yeah, I've heard of someone being a professional right, poker player. Right. Like, I just oh, always cut it off. For a while, blah blah blah, whatever. But like, yeah, you could just yeah. be like, Google me, just Google me, Google my Hinden mob. Um, I just the funny I, thing is, I had to do that with the Memphis Police Department once <laughs> to explain why I have thousand in cash on me. How much? How many thousand? Okay. Holy shit! Yeah. What are you doing in Memphis, driving around with sixty k in cash on you? I final table the 5K circuit main event in Tunica. Tunica? As I oh, did boy. for a while. <laughs> then uh, we, we were going through TSA, and I had been advised by someone who works for TSA to always keep cash on me and just, like, pull it out, show it to them. Mm -hmm. So it didn't go well. And <laughs> I still remember what this lady said to me. It's one of the funniest sentences that's ever been said to me. She goes, uh, well, we were just wondering why you had so much cash on you, see as how there are banks available and such. <laughs> it's a fair question. I wasn't even trying to be funny about it either. Exactly how it came out. And I managed to not just laugh in her face, but yeah, they, they decided to bring the Memphis PD in to question me. And then, uh, after a while, I, I legit just was like, if you Google my name, the first result that's going to come up is a list of all the poker tournaments that I've cashed in. And you'll see that a few days ago, I received this money in Harris Tunica. Yeah. And he looked it up and was like, all right, have a good day. That's it. <laughs> he was over it. Like, he, as, one, as long as he knows it's not drug money, he's, he doesn't care. Like, he knew I was like getting close to missing my flight because this, this had become like an hour long ordeal. That's the key then. So, right. If you ever want to make drug money, you just bink a tournament and yeah. then you funnel the drug money in. 
and you just yeah, lie, lie really to the police, right? We got a, we have a plan. Um, bridging the gap from those couple of years before you moved out to Vegas, playing the 10, 10Ks and 15Ks, what was that All like? Right. And you also mentioned makeup too, right? So I, I'm guessing yeah, yeah. you had to have I'm been getting staked. Yeah, because when there was a 10K every couple of weeks, I, uh, I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be able to be in my best shape when I was playing every prelim, every satellite. <laughs> it burnt out by the time I won the main event seat if I did win the main event seat. Um, but backtracking a bit, um, so I'm this is a month after my 21st birthday when they tell me that I can't get back into school. I have 3,500 left because I gave 3,500 to the admissions office and uh, didn't get into school anyway. So from there I start grinding though. There was like a hundred dollars, 100 plus 20 plus hundred dollar add on a trop with like 10 K guaranteed for first, no matter how, how crappy that made the payout structure for everyone else. <laughs> there was one time it was like, 10k for first 1500 for second 800 for third. i was like <laughs> um uh and i never managed to bank that one final table to the bunch but that was an infuriating payout structure to deal with then like a month month and a half after i get back down to atlantic city there's the 300 plus 40 weekly taj tournament was the biggest kind of weekly event in Atlantic City at that point. I final tabled it one week. And it's funny, I actually made two of my best friends in the world to this day in that single tournament. <laughs> and How did that come about? One of them was one of my opponents. Actually, one of them I had met on my 21st birthday playing at Trump, uh, playing one, two, but he was there that night as well. And then another guy that I met at the table uh, became one of my close friends after that. Um, I, I like stayed at his place a bunch when I was down in the AC area after I moved out to Vegas and stuff. And we're st we still talk. Is it, uh, isn't it funny how you know, a lot of people know Katie Stone, Capuccio. Sure. Uh, so her husband is one of my best friends. Ah, yeah. He, he was underage playing uh, one to a trop on my 21st birthday. I mean, that bad day. Nice. Um, <clears throat> so. All right, so I final tabled that Taj 340 uh, probably like a month after I get down there after being told I can't get back into school or at least I'm going to be like three weeks late, which is not really going to go well with a bunch of orange-level glasses. Um, so I final table it, and I end up taking a chop, even though it was ridiculously soft and I didn't want to do it. We were like... I think eight or nine handed and uh, we were still using chip chop model back then just to give you an idea of how ridiculous things were in 2004 uh, or 2000. This is 2006 now. So I actually got more than I should have because we're using the chip chop model and they offered me 7,000 when first is like 11 or 12. And I take it because I can triple my bankroll. And I just couldn't play with the pressure of knowing that my stack is worth twice what I have left in my roll. So I chopped it and then I came back the following week and finished third for another like 3,500 or 4K. And then the WSOP circuit came to Caesars Atlantic City in March of 06. 
and I played the first 340 and snap busted and then played a $75 sit and go to get into the 550 or whatever the rake was back then. Um, and end up chopping that final table five handed with Matt Glantz, who was chip leader and got 34K in that chop because it was a pretty big field and super top heavy payout structures back then. So that was like, that was kind of like the, the defining moment that was like, okay, this is, this is actually about to become a career. Like, uh, and I followed that up by winning back-to-back seats in the main event, which was a 10K for the circuit back then. Um, $200 rebuy, and I won both of them. So I sold one seat to Nikki Frangos, an old AC legend, and played the other one. And my role's at like 50K after that series. So not bad. Suddenly, suddenly uh, things are looking up. <laughs> I'm, fuck school <laughs> yeah that's the point i got to um it i still wasn't i still wanted to finish it was just it got to the point where like realistically even my parents said you know if you want to take some time off from school to pursue this we understand and i think my dad said that when he didn't know that i was already in a semester off like because i just wasn't home and <laughs> i wasn't yeah. gonna mention it because we were already fighting over the money I owed him for my car. <laughs> um, so I wasn't going to bring up the whole, they didn't let me back in this semester because he wasn't going to believe the story, no matter how true it was. <laughs> but you got to take care of the um, car situation once you, you have all your right, money for your bankroll, right? The funny thing is the, the first thing I did after that circuit series was over was drive up to my dad <laughs> and, uh, just toss the 10k rose wrap around while he's sitting there watching TV after I walk in the door. And I was like, is that enough or do I owe you more? <laughs> oh man. And he knew I got busted with pot in college, or he was like, is this legitimate? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, Are you gonna you gotta give it back if it's not, Dad? <laughs> His face when I said I won it in Atlantic City playing poker was pretty priceless too. I mean, he was concerned about me playing for real money when I was a broke college student. And it wasn't unreal, uh, unwise for him to be a little concerned because there was definitely a semester where I was eating a lot of ramen noodles and mac and cheese for uh, the sake of having burned through my entire bankroll and all my... Gotta take your lumps, you know? That's how you learn bankroll management and how you learn to uh, not suck and not play tournaments that you're not ready for. Absolutely. I was going to say uh, earlier before that, isn't it amazing how you mentioned earlier that like you were able to accept the bad and have a good mindset because everything in your life was because of poker and through poker. And that's a very easy thing to like look at and be like, oh yeah, that's, that's the case, you know? And even so much as your best friends in life. And I think for me, pretty much everything in life I can attribute to poker in some way, shape, or form. It's just woven throughout my family, my friends, my professional contact, just everything. Um, pays for my car, my house, my way through life for all this time. It's like, holy shit, like this really came from like a 3K bankroll that I saved up when I was 19 years old. And that's just pretty insane to me 
Yeah. So when you put that all in perspective and manage to remember, I mean, the real trick is managing to remember to put it in those terms right after you take a bad beat and to remember that in the moment, because it's, it's easy to see on a normal day, but when you're really just getting your face bashed into the felt, it, it really helps to kind of take a step back and try to remember all of that. For sure. And like, if I lost everything today, I would be up so much money over the course of my career. You know, it's like, it's just, yeah, it's uh one thing too. doing taxes every year has always been this interesting exercise that teaches me the value of like big losses. Cause <laughs> like, I'm like going through my taxes and I'm like, sweet minus eight K this day. Yeah. Like let's get a couple more of these in there. So I don't have to say when I was on bullet eight at Borgata 500 openers, like, Oh, this is becoming a nice little tax right off. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. We'll look back on this with fond memories. Um, and that's the ironic part about it is it always feels so painful in the moment. And then when you look back on it with perspective, like six months later, you don't even remember what the fuck happened that day. Like, you're like, I don't even know what happened. I, I had a really bad day, but I have no idea how it happened. Yeah. Like that's an ugly line on the spreadsheet. I don't know what occurred there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I felt like shit that day. All right. Yeah. I mean, it's a little easier now when like, I know you have the same thing when you, when you go back to your house and see your kids or if you're playing online, you get to see them immediately after like, that's what refocuses me. And like, I'll be in the middle of like a rough Sunday session and my, my son will like come running in and hop up on my lap and start pounding on my keyboard. And I'm just like, eh, none of this matters. As long yeah. as he's fine, I'm fine. And plus, I mean, as poker players, we tend to be a little, sometimes we can be emotionally fragile and it's like, we're playing a card game for a living. We pay our way through life by playing cards. Like, how silly are we to be <laughs> to get all bit out of shape over like a month long break even stretch or you know what I mean? It's like the first, the all time first world problem um, breaking even because I play this silly card game for a living. Uh, <laughs> so you move out to Vegas. Tell me about that. I'm guessing your dad was pumped. Um, that uh, that came a couple years later. So. I spent my first kind of, I think it was like two years. Yeah. From 06 to 08, I stayed in the Atlantic City area, just a couple of the towns outside of different rental properties. And the action wasn't that huge in Atlantic City back then. Like I said, Borgata was still building itself up to become what it's become now. And it was mostly still just like mid-stake stuff going on, especially with the tournaments. They just didn't have that many big tournaments coming through. So if I wanted to play a lot of tournaments, I needed to move to Vegas. Um, But within the first year after I was playing, I also started playing a lot online, mostly because I knew that uh, Cliff Josephy was backing a lot of people uh, for huge tournaments, but that he was going to want to see online results and hand histories from online tournaments. So obviously I had like an online background from college, but I had never played like big MTTs unless I satellited in. I would always just try to satellite into the Sunday majors. And other than that, I was playing like lowish mid stakes and like set the odds at the highest. Do you have a connection with is Johnny Bax, right? That was his screen name. 
Yeah, I didn't really have a connection with him. The actually, when I was in college, he was one of the players that uh, that I had been watching because I knew that he. It was like Shaniac, Bodogari, and him were like three of the players who were just like crushing back then. So Shaniac is Shaniac Shane Rose or Schlager? Shane Schlager. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I get I get um, Schlager and Rose confused. The funny thing is I've become pretty good friends with all three of them since then. And actually, like, Mark Voss and Dustin Dirksen were two of the original, like, online beasts that would answer all my annoying questions. <laughs> kind of yeah. When I was in college. So when I was, like, 19 and 20, those are two of the guys that give, give a lot of my credit to. But, um... So with Cliff, I had been like, you know, just saying good luck, Cliff, blah, blah, blah. I knew he like recognized my name from chat. And then I started playing all the big tournaments and um, within a couple months I had won like the, the Wednesday 320 on stars for like 30 or 40K and won a couple of the $100 rebuys. Um, so then I knew that like I could... I, I can't remember exactly how, but I, I was sure that I would be able to like get in touch with them one way or another and get a connection to them. So then they came down for like a series in Atlantic City. I think it was at Borgata. And you say um, they, so it's like it's facts. Oh, he used to have a business partner named Eric Haber who was referred to as Sheets. Sheets. Got it. So yep. Backs a lot from the old school vernacular. Yeah. Um, I don't but, know much about MTTs, but I do know of Johnny Bax and I do know of Sheets. Yeah. So I uh, I satellited in and won like this six satellite where I got like a seat to the, like the 2,500, 5K and the 10K in the Borgata series. So I was still playing on my own action, but was firing all of them. And in the 5K, I had Sheets on my right. And he introduced himself, and then, like, Cliff came over um, and was just like, hey, blah, 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 and, like, introduced himself and was like, were you playing under a different name before or something? Because you came out of nowhere or playing great. I think he was implying that I was, like, playing under a different name before I was 21, but I was actually playing as All-In at 420 before I was 21 and actually got caught by Full Tilt. They just, like, froze my account for six months on <laughs> my first birthday. Because I forgot that Stars was fine with you being 18 at that point, but Tilt wanted you to be 21, so I changed my birth year by one. Um, and then when I sent in documentation to cash out like an idiot because I forgot that I had lied to them, they were like, hey, we did get your document, <laughs> but we did notice that your birth year is off. You, you, you probably wouldn't have made that mistake if you had to finish your last year of college. but You know, exactly. I would have gone to a couple accounting classes and figured all this out. <laughs> Um, so, uh, he said like, have you, cause you came out of nowhere and are playing great. And I was just like, Oh shit. <laughs> so then I end up playing against cliff in the 10 K at my starting table, just as a double test. And then like got their info, sent them hand histories. And, um, they basically were just like, there were no like super high rollers back then. There was like the 25k WPG championship. And other than that, they didn't even have 25Ks. It was like 10K and 15K main events um, all over the place every month, every town. It was just like Alexi has a 10K and AC has a 10K. And like, 
So um, my role was like 70 to 100K most of that year. But I also like understood bankroll management by that point. I was like, I want to fire all these things. I thought I was just going to print millions of dollars and like get out of backing immediately. But uh, it's not exactly how it worked out. But yeah, by the time I turned 22, um, I mean, what did those backing arrangements look like back then? Like they just, you just show up, roll up to a stop. They're like, here's 10K, go play. Oh, yeah. It was like they knew how easy all the tournaments were. So it, uh, all it took was like, okay, let me see the hand history of the 100 rebuy and how you want it. <laughs> and okay, you have a clue. Like you're making mistakes, but you have a clue. Here's 10K, here's 5K, here's 25K when the 25K comes around. And Bellagio started having tons of, of like, Best Alaga was 15K. Like almost all of their main events was like four year were 15Ks and I was playing all of them. Um, how these, much money are these guys carrying around to all the tournaments? Like backing all these kids? Like, oh, oh yeah, thousands. They had <laughs> they had over seventy players at one point. Holy shit! I think the stable was like forty around that. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, they would just roll up to stops with three, four, five hundred thousand dollars. Um, handed out like candy. Good luck, boys. Go go make us some money. Yeah, it, it was pretty unreal. Um, so. That was kind of uh, the genesis of my career and then started grinding a ton, um, traveling all over the place. My first, like I said, I already kind of told part of the story of like when I first started traveling around, I was like playing really well, getting in these ridiculous spots and then just getting screwed and finally made up for it in November 07, I think. It was uh, Foxwoods 10K World Poker Finals. This was a fun one because three-handed, I'm playing against Sohel Shamsuddin and uh, uh, Cornell Sempan. And, like, both are just kind of, like, a little bit crazy and blasterish at that point in their careers. And I was just waiting for spots and really liked my chances. By the way, I'm playing for, like, three times my net worth at least <laughs> like probably more i'm trying to remember like i think i still had you know somewhere around 75 to 100k and if i got third with my makeup factored in i would get paid out 50 if i took second i would get 150 and if i got first i would get 375k because it was like 910 for first and i had like 100 whatever makeup so, uh, three-handed, I play a hand where I think it was just I opened five. I know I opened five, six of hearts on the button. So held defense from the big line. Comes king, king, four with two hearts. He checks. I think I check back. I might have see bet and he called. Either way, um, I turn a flush. Um, Texted me. And he check raises all in, and I snap. It's a paired board, but like this guy's insane. And he has king nine with no flush draw. And uh, it's like two thirds of the chips in play. I knock him out, get a hundred thousand in cash after my backers paid, and am heads up for a WPT title if I hold. And he rivers a boat, and I yelled, Gah so loud and with such 
vim, vigor, and passion. <laughs> they decided that they should make it part of the opening montage <laughs> for the World Poker Tour for years and years to come. Oh, and the man. thing is, I never even realized it until I made my second WPT final table, which wasn't for, I, I want to say, like another seven years, six years or something. <laughs> I final tabled Hard Rock Hollywood's Sherpa main event. And I'm standing backstage getting ready to walk out with the other final tableists. And we're watching the opening montage, and I see my job. <laughs> Are you guys kidding me? <laughs> like, do I have to relive that right now? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Oh, um, man, that's good stuff. Um, I played with Mike McLean in uh, at the Matrix, like probably less 10 years or so ago. And, like, again, I don't know very much about tournaments, but I know that he's like the face of despair at the guy. WSOP. <laughs> the agony of guy the in agony like of defeat guy i think it was the oh four man event he got screwed for all the chips and just looked <laughs> absolutely demoralized and they're like yes let's frame that put it on a wall put it on every opening montage let's just torture that guy for the rest of his life yeah 10, <laughs> ten years 10 years later i'm playing 10 and a quarter i sit down and i'm like oh you're mike mcclain you're the agony of defeat guy like, <laughs> it's like this is just what he's known for forever just because they decided to put him on that montage yeah that's exactly how i felt i didn't know if he even knew who mike mcclain was so i wasn't going to make the reference but i was basically like thinking to myself did they really have to like mike mcclain me did they want me to be the wpt's agony of defeat guy because i don't need that title like yep. I'm good. I love publicity and all, but uh, I'll hard pass on that one if I have an option. Yeah, they didn't give me an option. no <laughs> option. You no. you opted in when you signed I away all of your rights. Why they get to torture my life however they see fit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Poor Matt Affleck. He he got the same treatment. Um, oh yeah, got the same treatment. And he came on the podcast actually, and I I told him. I'm not even going to ask you about it. You've talked about it so many times. I'm sure that like, we're just going to skip over it. And, uh, <laughs> cause you're more than that one bad beat you took in the main event. Like you're more than that, man. Yeah. He's a, uh, he's a nice guy. He's a, he's a really great That's guy. Habit still breaks his balls about crying when it happened. Oh, he looks like after Adam Friedman way harder though. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that story. Adam oh. Friedman. Adam Friedman. Went in the, I want to say, 04 men event as well. He he got straight cooler, like King High Flush versus Ace High Flush, and tried to find a fold on her. In hold up. <laughs> and he, like, like, crying calls, sees the nuts, literally cries. <laughs> <laughs> it's a literal crying call. He, uh, he, uh, he was crying and talking about how um, he he's like, oh, I played perfect for three days, and I get this is what I get, blah blah blah. Like, uh, didn't so Pearl Jammer? Pearl Jammer had a breakdown like that too, didn't he? I don't remember. John Turner, I think he did. These poker players, we're we're a sensitive bunch. <laughs> I mean, you never know what's going on in someone's life. I know I stress out a lot more about hands when I'm like stressed about finances or like have other stuff going on. It's like 
just putting me on tilt before I even get to the table. Like it's harder to stay on an even keel when you're using poker as an escape, which is one of the reasons that I don't like to do it. For sure. And Doyle talked about that a very long time ago in one of his books that he wrote. I don't think it was Super System. Uh, maybe it was the godfather of poker. I can't remember, but one of those where his oldest daughter died and he just couldn't for like two years, he just couldn't win. He couldn't do anything, you know? And it's like the macro, when things go bad in the macro and you're dealing with that sort of, those sort of situations, you just can't play winning poker. Like you're, or you're also going to be miserable while you're, while you're playing poker as well. Yeah. I, uh, I kind of ignored that advice and it went really well last year, but in general, it's true. After I started saying it, I kind of remembered that uh, I had a weird stretch last year where uh, a friend of mine like called me to talk about somebody, uh, something else. And like, I think he was buying a piece of some big tournament and uh, he called me to talk about that. And then I told him that like, one of the main things that was on my mind was my great nephew who was two years old. Yeah. He was two years old, lived in New Jersey and had um, muscle cancer. And we like, he had gone, he had been in the hospital for a really long time, but then was on outpatient chemo and seemed to be doing better. They had taken like the trach that they had to put in out. And then unexpectedly the cancer like spread to his spinal fluid and the doctor said that there was nothing they could do and that he only had like a week or two to live. And if they gave him radiation, it was just going to like prolong his life a month or two. And it was just going to be like extraordinarily painful for him. So I was, that was like during hardcore lockdown, like June of last year or like the end of May last year. And I had been really good about staying completely locked down, except like carefully shopping, whatever. And it was a weird spot because like, it's the middle of lockdown. Like, what am I going to do? But play online poker. Like there's nothing else for me to really distract myself with and nothing to like go out and do. I can't run events at that point for CSOP and it was just kind of like a weird thing where uh, one of my friends was like, you know, like I, you should probably just take some time off and like not play during the stretch. I was like, I mean, I appreciate it. And like, I kind of agree, but like, I, I, I have no other escape right now and I kind of need it. And it, it propelled me to one of the most absurd heaters that I'd ever had. Uh, I won four tournaments in a week um three of them were like fairly big including the biggest online win i've ever had there was i think one of them was like the acr 215 daily for like 23k um so i had that conversation with them on monday i won that tournament on tuesday and then on thursday i won like a big 30 rebuy on wsop.com for like 14k then there was like some like hundred dollar hyper turbo for a little over 3k on friday or saturday and then sunday was the 2651 million on acr and i had actually like skipped the previous 2650 because i wasn't feeling that good about like my game and stuff and obviously was in a much better uh place in terms of poker confidence even though i was still 
obviously super stressed out about the family stuff and uh ended up winning that for 240k which is my biggest online score but i have some live scores that were bigger um but yeah that it was kind of weird uh it was it, it was still hard to put it out of my head no matter how many tables i played or how much i tried to distract myself but it was also really helpful and that it made it easier for me to take some time off and um, take a road trip out to the east coast we didn't want to fly in the middle of the pandemic but we also weren't going to not be there for family in jersey so yeah my wife and i threw our one-year-old in the back seat and drove cross country and my nephew um when we were on our way out there was like hey uh you mind if i just hop in the truck with you and move in with you because i want to get the hell out of new jersey and i was like well can't really blame you there um so he had actually I was, that was really shitty too because he got furloughed from his job like a few weeks before they found out that the the cancer had spread and then he and that's his ended up, it's his son his son yeah hmm. um so and then he and his girlfriend ended up breaking up shortly after um the child passed too which is pretty common in single child relationships it, it's really hard to look at someone who reminds you so much of the child you lost <laughs> like so he uh he and his girlfriend and the baby had actually lived with us for a little bit before and after asher was born to help us with the transition since they had just been through it too and could help us with all that so he already knew that he liked it out here and he was just like yep I think it's a high time I moved to Vegas and started a new life. He's been living with us ever since. Well, that's that's a lot. I'm first and foremost, you know, as we're both fathers, and that's yeah, I can't imagine. Um, again, you know, I was talking earlier about like first world problems of running bad and stuff like that, and like this is yeah this is the real pain suffering tragic nature of life and it's just you can't even really find the right words to approach the situation yeah i've been living with him for a year plus since then i still haven't found the right words so don't worry <laughs> it's uh not an easy spot to find the right words and there are no real words so i just I think that's yeah that's the life. that's the case you know there there are not there are no right words. You just can't, you can't summon them. They don't exist. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons that St. Jude Children's Research Hospital went from being just one of my favorite charities to my number one charity that I'm like really trying to raise money for with charity series poker, which we haven't even gotten into because we still just keep you, wandering off topic. You've had a long and illustrious career, Matt. What was the question you asked me? How much time do I have? We got, we got time. We'll, we'll make it to the CSOP. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do, one man Coach Brad Wilson. has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads that dunk to shreds nuffle available now go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle rated r 
So where did where did we leave off in your story? Because we jumped around to your biggest online victory. Um, yeah, that was more recent. We kind of left off on my Foxwoods. So, the God guy. <clears throat> so, damn, oh seven. <laughs> we got we got quite a ways to go. Yeah, a lot of it just blurs together until Black Friday. There's just a lot of wandering around, making some other final tables, but I don't know. Let's skip for Let's skip forward to Black Friday then. Black Friday was interesting. Uh, I I have been managing a small stable of mid stakes grinders and actually got oddly lucky. Um, the one player who had kind of won enough tournaments that. I was staking him for fairly high stakes, got 75, 80K in makeup, um, and then had a 70K score two weeks before Black Friday and, and happened to have it on stars instead of full tilt so that uh, a giant chunk of my net worth didn't end up being tied up in that. So Black Friday, like, I just kind of, like, was grateful for that. That was part of my first law process about black friday um and it happened in april i had just bought my house in vegas in december 2010. i've been so kind of backtracking uh spent another year in, in atlantic city after that first huge score but wanted to play all the big tournaments and was back by cliff after that and just decided to move to vegas in 2008 but then kind of wanted to make sure that i loved it and wanted to live there long term before I bought a house. Bought a house in December 2010 and then four months later Black Friday hits. So yeah, I mean it sucked and I actually I didn't even rent it out because I was an idiot and was doing well enough that I was just like hey, I'll just let it sit there unoccupied um, or just had like friends like staying to watch my dog and like stuff like that. But I moved to Costa Rica for a while. Um, that was one of the more fun experiences of my life and definitely an interesting side benefit to Black Friday is that it kind of encouraged me to get out and travel more. What was so I, interesting about Costa Rica? It's a completely different way of life. Uh, it's a third world country where everyone just seems way happier than everyone in the U.S. And it changed my perspective a lot just kind of seeing how poor and happy a lot of the people down there were in comparison to these like bitter, miserable and entitled like poker pros who make a hundred K a year and are miserable. That they don't make 300 K a year. Uh, just, I guess that's the best way to uh, summarize like the kind of realization I had there, but it was also just an incredible place in terms of like nature and, the the tourist stuff that they had to do there and i mean it sucks that it's uh hurricaning there all through september during w coop and uh you have electrical and wi-fi issues pretty frequently but you get enough backup generators you get in a building <laughs> that has two different internet services and uh you hope that a 7.6 earthquake doesn't hit but then <laughs> happened a couple of years later to me while I was there. So holy cow. Uh, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Uh so 
Then you're you're taking my availability really to heart. <laughs> let's 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 take our time. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to summarize all this and try to remember exactly how it all happened. So every three months I had to leave Costa Rica, so I would like rent places there, but then like go play a tournament in the U.S. as a family, fly back to Costa, um, still traveled around a decent amount, and then I had. I went down there two years later in 2011 and was in a 7.6 earthquake on the 14th floor of a 16th story building that was built to Costa Rican architect standards, not, uh, not American architectural standards. Are they better or worse, Matt? I'm going to go ahead and imagine the third world countries <laughs> are, are worse with this, but I mean, it is built in a place that's kind of used to having earthquakes. So you would think, that they would be ready for it. Um, it was 7.6 and the building was allegedly built to withstand an 8.0. It barely withstood a 7.6. Uh, so no chance of an 8.0. Right. I mean, like our TV fell off the stand, like 10 liquor bottles fell and like slid their way up like a foot plus, all fell on the floor. Like the whole, the whole floor, like building was violently shaking a few feet back and forth. I was like just getting to the, I woke up to this <laughs> in the middle of WCOOP and was trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And then was like, uh, I think I'm supposed to go near a doorway. And then I look, I can't find my flip-flops and the doorway has nothing but alcohol and broken glass. <laughs> and So much for a doorway. And I'm in like this panoramic room where it's like glass on two sides. And it was just really, really bad. Yeah, um, this is a death trap. My plan was to grab the air mattress and hold it on top, like on top of me while I lay on the couch and hope that I don't die when the building snaps. Um, that was kind of the point that I had gotten to and what I was about to do when it finally stopped shaking. And I was like, oh, we're going to live. Fantastic. Um, so then there was a tsunami warning after that. So, but I couldn't get. I didn't have a car and I couldn't get my driver who lived inland to come out. <laughs> on his own reasonably so i'm not gonna argue with the guy this, <laughs> this doesn't seem to be worth the fare <laughs> so i decided well it was the next day actually i was kind of perturbed by it but then kept playing w coop i took that day off from w coop but the next day woke up and fired and we uh we had some aftershock earthquakes, 5.5s and stuff, which are a lot more tame. Uh, it just makes you a little bit nervous about what level it might get to. There was like serious structural damage. Like there were giant cracks in the building and stuff after this was over with. Like, so we knew we we're already like kind of not in the best shape to begin with after all that. And and for, the, for the podcast listener too, by the way, like the Richter scale, it scales up like exponentially right it's like a seven an 8.0 is 10 times worse than a 7.0 right um and so the difference like between said, a 7.4 and an 8.0 is like there's a major difference there like 8.0 is way worse than 7.4 yeah. and like a 7.6 i think it ranks in like the top five or ten worst earthquakes of the year worldwide usually oh, congrats just to give you I think I, I think that that's what I read after this was all over with. Um, 
But what a yeah. shame. You, you've achieved all this success in life only to be undone by a massive earthquake that crushes you completely. And the irony is, like, I, I literally was thinking about UIGEA and them and Black Friday as I'm, like, like potentially about to meet my neighbor. <laughs> it was, the final thoughts in your I, mind. I legitimately thought about it while all this was going on. I was like, man, fuck those guys. <laughs> Fuck Sheldon Adelson. Ah. Uh, it's brutal. Um, Who's a so Bill Fritz they, is the Tennessee senator. Yeah. Cause I'm from Tennessee. So I know, I know the dude that did, the, <laughs> did the U I G E A. It is He's brought shame on my home state. <laughs> that rad bastard. So, <laughs> Then in the middle of the aftershock earthquakes, I decided I am over Costa Rica. Uh, I was staying with friends anyway and just like chipping in. So it was really easy for me to just be like, all right, guys, I don't want to die. I'm out. <laughs> so I, once I get down to two tables for my session, I sat there trying to figure out how I can get a last minute flight to Amsterdam to go stay with another friend out there and just like, they wanted 3500 for a direct flight, and I still don't know how this worked. I found a way to get a multi-way multi flight from Costa Rica to Amsterdam back to the U.S. for $1,300. <laughs> I was like, how do you want 3500 for this one flight, and you will reduce the price by 2200 if I take these other two flights? I just... It was a very strange deal. The, the flying yeah. world is is very strange. I, I've only been out of the country one time. It was to Canada to like set up a VPN after Black Friday. It was a horrible experience. I mean, just the worst. I've never been out of the country, so I didn't know how to deal with customs. They asked me like, "Why? What am I there for?" For like three days, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I think, yeah, I think I'm. No, I and I'm like the worst liar too. I'm like, uh, I trying to move to Toronto. I'm just checking out the weather in January. Um, it's not very good. Uh, <laughs> they were very skeptical and pretty much almost didn't let me through. And so I was already terrified out of my mind. So I didn't actually get anything set up while I was in Canada. But uh, I when I bought the flight, I remember it was like a grand, and it went from like Atlanta to Toronto and back. But then I found another flight from like Huntsville and it was like 300 bucks. But like there was like a layover in Atlanta on the way back. And I'm like, how does this, this doesn't make sense. Like <laughs> it's the same plane and the same route. So I just like yeah. hit the layover and just like got off the plane and left, left there for 300 bucks. But like, yeah, I don't understand yeah, I really the business model of flights. I've heard that that's a good hack, but if you do it a bunch of times, like an airline will ban you. Really? Yeah. Um, I've never done that one, but it's always tempting. I sure as hell would if I had seen the opportunity to. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But you get, <laughs> you get this $1,300 like round trip flight to Amsterdam and all around. What happened with that? Uh, I yeah managed to get that for thirteen hundred. I moved to Amsterdam that night. Just like stayed up till my seven a.m. flight. Like just was I was out of there instantly and started staying with a friend in Amsterdam. Like bouncing around to different EBTs because once you're in Europe, it's kind of like traveling around the states. There's not that much customs restrictions and stuff. Um, 
So it's really easy to just get last minute flights that aren't that expensive or trains or whatever. And it was a hell of a lot of fun. I spent about six or eight months in Europe Street and just kind of got to know Amsterdam pretty well. Um, was also just a lot of fun to be able to have that opportunity while I was still like young and had no kids and life was a lot different back then. Sure. Um, so then I ended up coming back to the U.S. because um, I was dating someone and, you know, kind of didn't want to be in Europe the entire time having a long distance relationship across the Atlantic. Uh, then when I got back, that was sort of when I was ready to start the charity series of poker because when I was 19 and in college and first started getting into the game, I was a vice president of Habitat for Humanity at my college and had done like a $10 rebuy fundraiser tournament, got like four or five tables in the dorms and got donated prizes so that all the money would go to Habitat, raised about a thousand bucks and everyone had a blast. It was a lot of fun running it. So it was always in the back of my mind when I started playing poker for a living that I wanted to be able to you know, support food banks, Habitat for Humanity. Those were kind of my main ones. Uh, I knew that St. Jude was already doing an event or some events and wanted to eventually do some stuff with them as well. Uh, so I was sponsored by, uh, starting around 2014-ish, when I came back from Europe, I was sponsored by Borgata because they started their online poker site didn't know what they were doing, wanted someone who was a Borgata reg and knew the players could be a kind of player liaison and help them figure out how to set up tournaments and some of the kind of nuanced differences between running live stuff and running online stuff. Um, so I was also sponsored by Hard Rock Hollywood at the same time, just kind of leveraged my uh, position with those two companies and they were just amazing to us and hooked us up with uh, basically like free food, free marketing, and like minimal or no rake, and uh, would just help us set it up to where we were spending our own money on some of the operating costs. They were doing a lot of it for us, and like every dollar raised was going directly to Habitat or food banks without us even recouping event expenses. Yeah, it's um, huge. That's great. Um, so we, did you, this was, you founded CSOP? Like this is your yeah, baby? Sorry. Uh, yeah, so I founded it and then Matt Savage and Mike Frazen, obviously Savage's executive tour director for the World Poker Tour. Mike Frazen's a businessman from Chicago that helped set up the, uh, the J.B. Pritzker, who's now the governor of Illinois. He has an annual Holocaust Museum event that raises seven figures and he was wow. kind of helping to set that up and is a close friend of mine. He was actually the one that I was talking to on the phone that like, told me I should take some time off. And I was like, no, nah, I'm just going to go on this massive heater instead. <laughs> no, I'm just going to win yeah. everything instead. You know, it's more absolute fun. Distraction. Yeah. Um, so started in 2014, spent 20 grand of my money and 15 grand of my friend's money over the course of the first three years. And we raised $350,000 for uh, the charities in the first 12 events, three annual events, the first few, four years. Then, Give me a sense of like the feeling of accomplishment of like running one of these events, raising a bunch of money versus, you know, playing in a tournament and, you know, going deep or binking it. 
Uh, I mean, I love like the 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 adrenaline rush of winning tournaments, but it's also a, a selfish endeavor. Obviously, depending on what you do with the money, but it was always something that like as much fun as it was there was a level of it that was unfulfilling and that i knew that i wasn't like i wasn't using my knowledge my ability my uh, intellect to do something that was really productive in the world it wasn't benefiting people in any meaningful way so it's definitely a lot more satisfying to me to do well as president and founder of the CSOP and make sure that every event is fun for everyone involved, represents the charity well, uh, you know, and raises a lot of money for the charity. So that's always been uh, kind of a lot of fun for me in that when I set this up, I thought it was just going to be this real easy thing where I just tell the, tell the casino to run this event. Everyone's just going to show up. And I didn't realize how much, it was going to take in terms of operations, marketing, learning how to do all these different things. Savage didn't, he didn't give you any hints or clues. Savage answers all my questions. Savage wasn't like running it though. It was <laughs> something where I was like, it's like, no, like, is this uh, hard to run a tournament series? Savage is this like, <laughs> we just, we just put it up and they all come, yeah, right? That's fine. how it works. Be <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> that was, that actually kind of led to one of the best compliments I've ever gotten. Mac Verstandig, the lawyer, is uh, not only like an amazing lawyer, but also just one of the smartest and like like real sarcastic, dry, witty, funniest people I've met. And <laughs> like he, he when he, when we first met and started talking about CSOP because we wanted him to help us, he's now on our board, uh, but after one of the first meetings and after he looked into what we do and how everything came about, he asked me, he's like, you've had other people like helping, like do all this. Right. And I was like, no, I, I did most of these things myself. And then just occasionally have like friends volunteer to do graphic design or have to like ask somebody else how to do this or that. Cause I know that it more falls in their area of expertise, but like, it, it was just kind of like a one-man show for the first few years when I was volunteering and um, just kind of trying to get, like, the guidance I needed from the outside. He, like, looked at me, like, dumped out. He's like, you're a savant. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> not expect that, uh, that coming from, like, one of the smartest people I know. Like, I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. But it, when I look back and look at, like, the current uh, operations list, like, uh, I'll get that in a moment but basically like working out of the office of my creative marketing company that has a full services team where i have one person doing web design one person uh, like setting up all the email marketing another person doing all the social media another person doing all of our graphic design and as we streamline this and try to put all the pieces together and realize like everything we need to do like we come up with this giant list of order of operations and everything that needs to be done like and I'm just like backtracking, thinking about like, I had to kind of just learn how to do this from the ground up with like a little bit of mentorship from people here and there and people volunteering. Like I'm clueless on graphic design. So that was always something where we always needed volunteers or had to pay for services when we couldn't get volunteers. But for the most part, it was just kind of like trial and error and trying to figure out the best way to do all these things. So 
The first event we did was for Three Square Food Bank at Planet Hollywood in 2014. And we we netted, I mean netted, we didn't we didn't charge them any of our expenses. We paid like probably spent a couple grand on it um and all the setup costs and everything. But um they netted fifteen thousand dollars the first event. And I got a phone call from the CEO of the food bank thanking me. And I was like, well, to be honest, I appreciate your call, but I'm a little disappointed in myself because I thought we were going to raise at least 25,000. <laughs> uh, he laughed and called me crazy. And then the next year we raised 42,000 in the same event. And he called me again and he told me that he no longer thought I was crazy. <laughs> now he wanted to set up a dinner to talk about how we can continue to grow this thing over the years. Yeah. Um, now he you got his attention. You're not crazy anymore. <laughs> How much do you think you can make next year? Um, yeah, exactly. So that's when I realized that we were really on to something. I mean, and this is all predicated on the generosity of the poker community. Obviously, like on the back end, I was doing everything myself, but like it, nothing happens if we don't have people in seats. We don't have sponsors paying for sponsorship packages, players firing off rebuys. That's the most fun part. I mean, most of our events are 300 or 500 if it's like a big gala with a dinner type event and people just fire off hundred dollar rebuys left and right we had an entire table all in blind at one three <laughs> like <laughs> just nine people all agreed <laughs> like firsthand all in uh and we had a new chip leader so that's kind of the best part for me is knowing that we represented the charity well set everything up properly and people are just there having a good time having some drinks and firing off rebuy after rebuy yeah it's always it's interesting that we live in such a cutthroat world that is filled with so many giving and empathetic human beings um just so many good people that just live to give back you know i just had andrew barber on the podcast and he said that like whenever he started playing for charity and like donating portions of his winnings to, I think it's uh, REG, right? Yeah. Um, it just changed everything. It was just like a whole paradigm shift of like, now he's excited to go play. Now he wants to win more money because he gets to donate more. And it just kind of changed everything from this sort of like, we only have our own self-interest in mind forever. And we feel... We always feel, I think, or most of us, I, I guess I can't speak for everyone, but we always feel a little bit like, ah, oh, this is a very selfish endeavor where I'm kind of just serving myself and we want to give back. And yeah, it's just great hearing these stories of you guys that like, yeah, you put your money where your mouth is and you invest not only your money, but your life force, right? Your time, your energy, your blood, your sweat, your tears from somebody that's, you know, trying to grow a for-profit business. I can say that like, growing any sort of business is a shit ton of work and there's nobody to bail you out. There's nobody to teach you. Like you have to learn everything kind of on your own. It's trial by fire and to do it for something that is raising money for something worthy and something worthwhile, man. That's just, it's an amazing story and highly, highly commendable. Thanks man. I appreciate that. Um, so, so things skyrocket eventually. Right, things kind of go stratospheric. Yeah, that was so. Like I said, uh, I was a volunteer the first four years, twelve events, one uh, one at each place, raised three hundred and fifty k, and then in twenty seventeen, Negranu. It was the night of our Hard Rock Hollywood event. Let's 
can we put this in like uh context here that's one every three months for three years and like what's like the time commitment to run one of these these guys it's probably 100 hours so i was only putting in like 300 hours a year which is enough that i could you know do it out of the kindness of my heart and it didn't cut enough into my hours of playing poker plus i wasn't i, I didn't have a kid i had a lot more time on my hands in general so um that was that was just like kind of a fun thing for me to do on the side so that i feel like i'm doing more in general and it was it was supposed to go on that way i just i i really i didn't necessarily have this like idea of blowing it up it was something that i thought may eventually happen but uh, i was still kind of happy to continue playing for a living like just donating a few hundred hours a year and some of my money to help set up the cost because we weren't we weren't doing things to the extent that we are now like with the saint jude gala which was a massive undertaking it's a lot different uh so so basically uh, that that kind of segues into it well so the saint jude gala had been going on for five years up to that point it started daniel negrani founded the event in vegas around the same time i think it was 2014 or 2013 and around the same time when it started CSOP and um, we were like friendly. I didn't know him that well, but then we, he texted me the night of the Sherpo event where we were doing an event for Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in Florida. And the event had like 350 people. Everyone was posting about it. They were having a blast. And like, he saw all of it and he texted me. He's like, hey, I want you to uh, help take over as chair for my St. Jude event. And I was like, uh okay where do i sign <laughs> um, so that was kind of a turning point for csop because i took that event on and was like okay i guess i could do four a year and chair this event and my plan was to just keep doing that and i talked to negranu the first order of business for me was like why aren't the golden knights sponsoring your event negranu is like a super fan has 16 season tickets like considered buying 1% of, of from the owner before they became a team. And I was like, why aren't you trying to get, you know, autographed jerseys, see if you can get player appearances, whatever you can get from them, cash, whatever it is. Like they have, they have all the things we need. Like no matter how they want to support it, there's a way that we can make this work. And he contacted them and was like, Hey, uh, I talked to the golden Knights and they want to uh, they want to sponsor the event but they want to run their own charity poker tournaments too and they don't know how so <laughs> they want to talk to you and i grew up playing hockey i'm a diehard hockey fan and already had season tickets for the golden knights and was just absolutely floored at this like i have not been nervous i can honestly say this like I don't get nervous for final tables. If I get in my own head, it's only on break and when I'm away from the table. When I'm at a big final table, I have the ability to put out thoughts about the money, how life-changing it can be, how much I need a pay jump given my life situation, whatever it is, and just purely focus on the game, like apply everything I know, like, like put aside the nerves. I got straight nervous for this meeting. I was like, I can't believe an NHL team is asking me to do this because one of my dreams was like, hey, I wish I could do an event for the Garden of Dreams Foundation for the New York Rangers because that was the team I grew up watching. And 
Like that was like a pipe dream. I actually had thought I had an in, did have an in, tried to use it, didn't work. I never got the call back, whatever, when we tried to do an event with Garden of Dreams, but they're actually coming to me like, hey, we need your help. Like it was absolutely surreal for me. And it was kind of a turning point because when I met with them, they were like, all right, we want you to run our events, but we also have a sister foundation called Folded Flag Foundation. It does scholarships and grants for families of fallen soldiers. And that's the owner of the Golden Knights kind of like pet project and like his love because he was in the army and that's how he likes to give back. So it went from like, okay, well, we're doing these three events a year and spending a hundred hours on each event to, all right, now we have like six to eight events a year. And oh, by the way, the Raiders are also talking to the Golden Knights and want to do a, a CSOP now too. I'm like, so in November, 2019, we did a, Vegas Golden Knight or uh, a Raiders Foundation charity series poker event. And that's when I was like, all right, well, this is something that, um, it was something that like a lot of nonprofits need because poker took over for golf as the number one fundraiser for charity a few years back. And that's great. And, but at the same time, you don't have people who know this is how we should structure the event. We should, you know, make it like have a, a little bit of play during the rebuy hour, make it a turbo after that. You Like the, the St. Jude event before I got there, I don't think that they had Negreanu do the structure or he uh, did not look closely enough at it. <laughs> they still talk about the one that event, uh, event that ended at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh man, that is brutal. Um, and... That was also one of the things is like, I didn't realize how effective our other events were, but a lot of it comes from Borgata and Hard Rock Hollywood being amazing to me um, and giving us sweetheart deals, not charging us for a lot of stuff they would usually charge thousands of dollars for. Um, but when we started looking at other charity events and the effectiveness of it, it just wasn't there. They're spending on like B-list celebrities flying in and like, they don't, they're not like paying them appearance fees, but like the costs add up pretty quickly when you have to put up like two people for a flight, a, a hotel for two nights, like, and a lot of things just weren't worth it. Uh, and that's kind of become my job is to go in for existing events and act as a consultant and figure out where we should be spending, where we need to cut spending. And so we actually doubled the revenue of that St. Jude event. The first time I ran it, I, I, I didn't get involved until 20, until a few weeks before it in 2017 and just kind of wanted to like get in, get the feel of the event and see how it went. And they raised 180 grand, but it's a, it's a pretty expensive event to run when you're doing 250, like dinner for 250 at a casino, even when you're getting really good deals and discounts and things like the bill adds up pretty quickly. So um i was very proud to that the first time i was event chair for it we raised three hundred and fifty nine thousand, and we actually had the next iteration of that event scheduled for i think it was april 4th 2020 like one month after lockdown got serious and really kind of sad that that didn't come to fruition because we put a ton of work in but now we're looking at let me look at the calendar i want to say it's March or uh, May 24th, if that's a Saturday. 
Uh, next year, we're going to have that event. It's looking like, yeah, Saturday, May 21st is going to be the St. Jude Against All Odds Gala. They're also doing a golf portion of it on Friday the 20th now. New, new twist we're working on to kind of help us get from 360K for to 500K and eventually a million dollars with that event alone. It's going to be so sick, man. You're, uh, I see, I see the effects of lockdown now as it relates to how you spend your energy, because I assume there's been no charity series of poker events since lockdown started, right? Has it just been like blanked? Yeah, we, uh, we actually ran a couple online events. There was one event we ran, uh, last year when, when things started to get better before it got worse again, and we were less comfortable running live events, but, um, we did a, a Leukemia Lymphoma Society event that smashed its expectations, raised over 40K, its first event, uh, worded a 10K made event seat. And we've done a couple of St. Jude online events through Faded Spade as well. So that's something that uh, I want to probably vertically integrate on eventually and have CSOP's own online poker site so that these charities will have an easier time just kind of having one-stop shopping like our, our whole goal is vertical integration and everything we're we're getting a, a software to right now we use give smart which is a common charity silent auction software that also works for selling rebuys and add-ons and tickets for events and things uh we're trying to create our own version of that that will not only be more geared toward our poker purposes and needs, but also cut the credit card processing fees because it's three and a half with GiveSmart. And with Stripe, uh, we can link um, Stripe directly to the accounts now and we'll be able to get it down to 2.2 processing fees for nonprofits for Visa and MasterCard. And then plan on buying 20 tables, 6,000 chips, and eventually running an online poker site so that we just don't even have to hire anyone, ask anyone else for anything to be able to provide these services for our beneficiaries. Awesome, man. That sounds, that sounds really cool and really exciting. Um, hopefully, hopefully we get back to some semblance of normality in the next yearish six months to a year funny you mentioned faded spade tom wheaton is going to be coming on to the podcast tomorrow afternoon so that episode will probably be released directly after after this one um nice tell him i said hi <laughs> <laughs> i will i'll tell him you said what's up and you know we've skipped over a lot and like i sometimes sometimes happens on this show or is actually prone to happen is you know I asked one question and that question took like an hour and a half because like I said, you're rich and illustrious poker journey. Um, <laughs> and we skipped over many, many years, right? We probably could have done many more hours. So here at the end, I have a kid, had a kid too. I better put that in there before I got in trouble. <laughs> you had a kid. You did. Congratulations. Right. Um, and let's, if, if you would like, we can book, around two for some time in the near future. And we can kind of circle back and ask more of these questions that I have. I'm sure the audience would love it. But before we part ways, um, I will ask a couple lightning round questions and then you can direct people to um, the CSOP in case they want to be involved. 
so yeah, if you could wave a magic wand, change one thing about poker, what would you change? I just heard Norman Chad in my head, head yelling, re-entries, kill re-entry. It <laughs> was weird. Why is my brain going there? Anyway. I don't know. Norman Chad, he's, he's a character. Um, as somebody that has never interacted with Norman Chad, I think the first thing that he said to me was like, uh, I can't remember, it was like an, in an email, and it was something along the lines of, I don't want to go on your second-rate stupid poker podcast. I, I was like... Damn, that's pretty. That's pretty hardcore, Norman. Um, and then afterwards, he's like, yeah. on it, "Huh?" I figured he would say that, but then get on it. Yeah, he did get on it. Of course, he did. Like yeah, that. He's like, "I was just kidding." Like I get that all the time. People don't understand. I'm joking. I'm like, because there's no context to the joke. <laughs> like we didn't go from one place to another. We've never met each other. Um, now I just assume he's always joking, no matter how horrible the things oh, yeah. he says is. Yeah, he uh, he stopped by one of my first Twitch streams to like talk some smack. <laughs> like, I didn't even know he really gave a crap who I was, and I, I was like, "Wait, why are you stopping by my Twitch stream?" Thank you. <laughs> I was honored, even though he was breaking my balls. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he does. That that's that's what he does these days. Um, so, getting rid of the reentries, you can go straight to Matt Savage um, and thank him for the reentry situation in mtt's although i feel like eventually somebody would have stumbled upon it i mean i'm just gonna go with cheating i would i would have to say that uh you know collusion chip dumping uh the the real-time simulator stuff like it's fine to study with simulators but using real-time assistance is like the death of online poker agreed i will go with cheating in general as being the one thing i wish i could change but it uh I'd like to think that it's not in every game and that it's less common than we might think. But I might be being overly optimistic and hoping that. I know there's plenty going on, obviously. I think there's plenty going on, but I also think that there's still, like, the games are still beatable and (laughs) there's still win rate to be had and very high win rates, even at the highest stakes. My private coaching students play in those streets and the games are still good. Although, you know, there are times where people will sort of tank on a trivial decision that's a little bit foreign. And, uh, you know, the question marks always start popping up in my head. Like the main, main edge that I've had in cash games all these years is like, I'm really good when things get dirty and deep in the decision tree. I'm good at problem solving, logicking my way through a hand. And sometimes people start tanking in spots that are like shouldn't really be tanking spots but are also kind of foreign and my mind immediately goes to like are they getting some kind of assistance and this basically like eliminates my edge or like dulls it substantially if they can just look something up and oh I, i don't know what to do here but i've got a guide that will show me the way yeah, it's like I'm up millions in this game, but how many millions would I be up if I had never gotten cheated once? I'd okay. like to think it wasn't a lot more, but then I find out more and more sickos or multi-accounting MTTs, and uh, I watch my win rate, drop, win rate dropping as they do more and more accounts. I will say that I think multi-accounting is a big issue, and I'm not in the MTT streets, 
I just heard through the grapevine that it's a thing that is pretty common practice. Yep. Unfortunately true. At least yep. it's slightly less malicious than most forms of cheating, but still quite scummy and taking away win rates from people who are being honest and playing one account like they're supposed to. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate. And I know that you know, Katie Stone's talked about it on Twitter some, but uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I have no idea how to police it. I have no idea what even is involved in multi-accounting, like VPN wise or how they can crack down at real-time assistance is another thing. I have no idea how to police because what do you do? Like, how, how do you, how do you go about yeah. doing, doing such a thing? All right. So if you could erect a billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on their way to the casino. What does Matt Stout's billboard say? That every poker player has. Besides, don't cheat, assholes. Yeah, naturally there's that. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out how I would encourage people to support their favorite charity. Whether it's Charities Years of Poker, St. Jude, Free Square Food Bank, whatever. Like, I would definitely encourage people to remember how grateful they are to be able to play the game that we play and to try to give them extra motivation. A lot of times I definitely will find that, you know, CSOP motivates me to um, because the more you have, the more you can give back. And it's definitely uh, been a, a lot of fun being able to use this as my outlet not have to do something outside of the poker community and to just get to see this like the best side of everybody who comes out to these events because um obviously you're dealing with like the good humans to begin with in the poker community when they're showing up for an event that obviously like even though there's a 10k main event seat they know that we're going to take in fifty sixty thousand dollars and most of the money's going to the food bank so there are some like pretty significant prizes in our events, but they're also showing up there out of the goodness of their hearts, knowing that their ROI is going to be negative no matter how well they play. Um, so I get to see not only some of like the best humans in the poker community, but get to see their best side where they're out letting loose, having fun, not having to take an event so seriously, especially our three square food bank event in the middle of the world series of poker during one of the flights of the main event. It's always been like my opportunity to kind of remind myself like, why I play this game, why I enjoy it so much and just not, and just kind of try to take a break from taking it so seriously and being so stressed out, making sure that I make every decision I can make perfectly in every bracelet event. And I finally just get to have a few drinks and like enjoy the game. And have fun. And I mean, it sounds like a fun journey, you know, you've built up this business that's now sponsored by, you know, professional sports organizations in the place where you live where you have season tickets i mean that's just that's really amazing um seeing this idea grow to that scale and i'm excited to see what happens next back when you know the lights come back on in the world and um For final sure. fifth and six we're trying to have two events during the main event and families for effective autism treatment a local autism charity Awesome, so man. hopefully the lights will be on in time for that. There you go. So if you're in town during the WSOP, where, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness listener find more information about you and the CSOP? CharitySeriesOfPoker.org or The CSOP on Twitter. 
I think it's the CSOP on Instagram as well. Might just be charity series of poker. I don't go on Instagram. Like <laughs> I said, I, I'm very fortunate to have like built this out to the point where we have a board of directors full of people helping me out. And uh, SKC Group is an absolutely amazing full services creative marketing company that just donates services and does everything for us because they are the best. Yeah. Your social marketing team right now is like that motherfucker can't even plug us on Instagram one time. We don't ask for much, but he can't plug us on Instagram. Come on, Matt. Yeah, I'm pretty bad at the gram. Never been my thing. <laughs> I do Facebook with Twitters. <laughs> All right, it is charity series of poker on Instagram. All right, charity series of poker on Instagram. The CSOP on Twitter. There you go. Thank you very much. I, no problem. <laughs> I am Matt Stout Poker on Twitter since you asked about me as well, even though I care a lot more that people follow the charity series of poker. <laughs> For sure. And can they link, can they click through from your Twitter account to CSOP? Yes. I have it in my profile that I'm present and founder of the CSOP. There you go. So you can find it there. Thank you very much for your time and your energy, man. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Let's do it again in the near future. Best of luck on the grind. Uh, win a couple more tournaments before before November rolls around. Yep. Quick shout out to my son, Asher, and my wife, Brittany, since I didn't get to talk enough about him because I haven't been talking about my recent <laughs> life. We, kind of, we hit the two-hour mark a little bit early. Uh, so... <laughs> probably yeah. best if we schedule a part two so uh yeah then we can talk more about their amazing impact on my life too. absolutely and to be fair i release three podcasts a week so i have a never-ending need for more and more content we'll find the time let's book something after the world series and get a round two on the books yes sir have a good rest of your day man you too man take care thanks appreciate you having me Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.